Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Our second uh, uh, weekend of uh, lockdown in Victoria in our third permutation of COVID. I think that's it. Um the uh, Today on Solidarity Breakfast, you're here with Annie, and uh, we're going to, uh, touching laminates, everything goes as to plan. We're first, first up, we're going to uh, find out a little bit about uh, um, a really interesting thing that uh, the uh, federal government is uh, continuing in its uh, push to try and silence protest, and uh, it's... It, uh, yet again, it's uh, trying to crack down on charities uh, as a way of uh, silencing protests. So we're going to talk to Bill Rowlings from uh, uh, Civil Li- uh, Liberties Australia for uh, a perspective on this legislation that uh, the executive is pushing, the LNP federal government uh, is pushing. Uh, we're going to move on then to talk to uh, Goopeep. Uh, who is a uh, COVID-safe organiser from the Mog- uh, Migrant Workers Centre at the Victorian Trades Hall Council. Uh, he is one of the people that is uh, actively working to try and keep workers safe. So he's going to tell us a little bit about their checklist and uh, what's been going on in that uh, area during our um new uh, COVID scare in uh, Melbourne. And uh, later on, we'll hear from Over the Wall, who uh, Peter Davis is going to continue his uh, look at how uh, the social services uh, support people are uh, trying to help people uh, navigate and uh, get fairness within the social security system in Victoria. We move on to uh, Kevin, who's going to give his uh, view of the week. And we're going to follow it up with a chat with Dr. Scott uh, Hawken from the uh, School of Architecture and Built Environment in Adelaide University. You might be aware that um, in Georgia, there's uh, really big uh, demonstrations going on over a proposed uh, hydroelectric scheme which is going to apparently uh, make uh, Georgia independent of uh, outside electricity resources. It needs, it has 50% dependence on outside uh, sources, etc, etc. But it means it's going to uh, flood a, a huge area 
and um, the of the Rayoni Valley and in the west of the country, and uh, thousands of people are protesting against it. They they've uh, basically are tired of thirty years of unbridled privatisation and deregulate deregulation. Now you might wonder why are we going to talk to uh, Dr. Scott Hawken? Well. It's sort of left thinking here. He has uh, been um, doing research into the actual accountability and outcomes uh, of um, major impact on uh, hydrological systems uh, after these large mega urban projects uh, put into place, and he's. But it's in uh, Southeast Asia, so he's uh, looked at uh, a project in Vietnam, a project in Myanmar, and a project in Cambodia. And uh, he was. Uh, it's he's. It's part of recent calls from the United Nations for greater accountability in mega projects globally. Anyway, I thought it wouldn't it be nice to find out from somebody who actually had some wisdom in the area. Uh, to find out uh, where the people might lie and uh, where economics actually really intersects with culture. Three CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June, and this year we're asking you to be part of community-powered radio. It's only with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled, and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference, and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2021. 3CR Community Powered Radio. Yes, yes, yes. Show your love, show your love, as all the uh, nice uh, people at this station says to all our listeners, show us your love uh, during June. Uh, this week, uh, next week, sorry, is the... Uh, uh, the other languages programs uh they um they we've, we've got a strong element of uh, giving political voice to uh whole groups of different groups of people uh lang- people with uh english as a second language uh a very dynamic uh set of programs uh and they're doing their radiothon first and then the following week is programs like us uh with english as our first language and um so uh, save some pennies. You can do it online. You can come into the station. Yes. So I think at the moment can maybe you know maybe a bit tremulous. We might they might be able to tell you update. Maybe we'll be allowed out of our houses by then. Uh, anyway, online by mail. Uh, ring us up. We we can uh, tell you uh, be part of it. We'd love you to be. Uh, before we get on to the program, I wanted to start off with uh, a little bit of a news item. Uh, there was, uh, you, if you've been listening to 3CR over the week, you will have heard a variety of different reports about the uh, uh, disruption, the Land Forces uh, Festival going on in Brisbane at the moment. Their aim was to disrupt Land Forces Weapons Expo and uh, they claimed a victory. Uh, the activists claimed success in that disruption yesterday. Uh, I'll read what they say. Anti-militarist 
activists have claimed their festival of resistance to be a success after a week of disrupting the Land Forces Defence Expo in Brisbane. Disrupt Land Forces is a coalition against organised in response to 300 companies gathering at the Brisbane Convention Centre to sell weapons and military equipment. After a week of headlines about protest activity, the group are claiming the event to be a success. There were more than 25 arrests during the week. Twice during setup, the loading dock was blocked by people climbing on top of trucks carrying military equipment. A continuous presence of noise and visual images was maintained outside the convention and 15 activists got into the expo on Wednesday and climbed on top of a Rymanstall tank. Disrupt Land Forces spokesperson... Uh, Margaret Pistorius said the companies at Land Force Forces made their, make their money from death and destruction across the world. They profit from drone strikes in the Middle East, from the ongoing colon, colon, colonisation of West Papua. And that's Freudian, isn't it? Unable to even say the word of West Papua, and from the nuclear arms race that keeps the world on the edge of destruction. They corrode our democracy with a revolving door of personnel between government, military and the arms industry and with their lobbying for endless arms build-up. They take money away from underfunding social services. Now, that's what they said. And uh, you might think to yourself, oh, well, you know, uh, what's it got to do with us anyway? Why are we reporting a demonstration in Queensland? Well... There was a, a press release here in Victoria, the 1st of June, just put out. Listen to this. New Defence Centre lands more jobs in Victoria. Victoria's defence industry jobs will grow with the establishment of a new state-of-the-art centre in Bishamon's Bend with support from the Andrews Labor government. So lots of money in war. Uh, as long as you're at a distance and you're, you know, you're wearing your suit and you're talking in your reasonable voice. Minister for Industry Support and Recovery, Martin Perkula, announced that SIPAC Systems would expand its Victorian operation in a new facility and establish a defence autonomy centre of excellence, creating 280 jobs. I love these words, uh, Defence Autonomy Centre of Excellence. Hmm... Uh, the uh, CPAC Centre of Excellence will develop innovative technologies and intellectual property related to autonomous systems and cyber security, spearheading Victoria's competitive advantage within the defence sector and generating expenditure of $45 million annually when fully realised. CPAC is a leading engineering company specialising in defence, national security and information technology that has been a leading industry participant since its establishment in Melbourne almost 30 years ago. Its mini drone has a diagonal span of 18 centimetres, weighs 280 grams and has video and radio capacity that can be used for purposes including natural disaster response, good and monitoring of events crowds. Mm. SYPAQ Simpac Systems joins global firms including Boeing, Leonardo and Simmons in calling Fisherman Bend home. All right, there you go. Victorian's defence sector 
contributes up to $8.4 billion to the state's economy each year, employing around 24,000 people in 6,300 businesses that manufacture equipment and provide services for defence activities. See, it's like there's lots of money in war and there's lots of money in poverty. There you go. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and... uh, We'll shortly move on to other things. Hey, will you come to my aid? If I'm in trouble, will you know? Will you hear me? Your voice split the waterways, drove a day through battle. Made a circle from a speck And if I have a hard time Being in my body If I want to run from Everything she tells me If I want help From all I've hated Can I borrow your eyes and let love take me? Hey, will you know my name? Or will my name not matter in the circle you create? I hear in your moving water I am my own shelter If I fail or farewell And if I have a hard time Being in my body If I want to run from Everything she tells me If I want From all I've hated Can I borrow your eyes And let love take me Can I borrow your eyes And let love take me This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. You're back with Annie on 3CR on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got Bill Rollings on the phone. Bill is from Civil Liberties Australia. G'day Bill, how are you? Hello Annie, good morning. Yeah, good. Um, the reason why I wanted to have a chat with you is because of uh, an, uh, um, a very interesting thing that's turned up at the draft of the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profit Commission Amendment 2021 Measures Number 2, Regulations 2021. Now, the reason for why it's important is that it seems to be an ongoing pursuit of charities to uh, stop people from uh, demonstrating publicly against uh, government uh, 
uh, and other uh, things of uh, in you know disruption, social disruption. They'd see it. Can you give my listeners a little bit of an understanding of why Civil Liberties Australia can, are concerned? Well, this is a government trying to uh, introduce thought police legislation, and that's really worrying for everyone. Um, this this legislation will it will stop charities doing what charities want to do in the general sense of, of public uh, demonstration or protest or whatever. So they can be um, lose their registration, which loses all their benefits, on the basis not only of what they do, but of what someone else does over whom they have no control. Um, based on something perhaps on the charity's website um, or in social media. So it's a real thought police um, thing. It, it means that um, anybody who commits an offence that involves real property, personal property or, or against people can be um, targeted uh, as some, uh, under summary offence uh, charges <coughs> Uh, and then the charity itself, if it, ha- if it is seen to have provoked this person to act, uh, it would be uh, lose its charity status. So I'll give you a for example, which is probably a better um, way of explaining it. The, the, the government doesn't like people who protest against fracking. That is, you know, the different type of getting oil out of the ground and also against genetically modified food. So it's the type of people who make midnight raids or send drones in to to observe genetically modified food or um, abuse of pets in various situations, abuse of animals, um, chickens and so on. These are the types of people that the government doesn't want protesting. And it's Instead of charging them, which can do, it's, it's always able to charge people for trespass and all the rest of it, it is charging those, those bodies that might have a website that say, hey, um, fracking is bad or um, bad ch- chickens in cages are bad. So the third party can be charged for what someone else does, someone over whom they have no control, because that someone has read something on the charity's website or on social media. That's why it's thought police. Yeah, yeah, it's really quite... Uh, there's a couple of things before we uh, move on to those particulars. Uh, it, it, this guy, You know that you, when you say thought police, and it's an ongoing attack because this has been going on for uh, quite a, a half decade or so, assault on, on charities and non-profits by the uh, Liberal National Party federally, uh, is that the proposed amendments are, uh, are done by... Um, legislation, which is something that allows the Morrison government to uh, create the legislation without uh, the input of the rest of Parliament. That's an interesting approach, isn't it? That's why it's ideological. Well, that's part of why it's ideological, yeah. Many people don't understand how laws are made, and they think that Parliament makes laws and and that's, that's it. Well, in fact, half the laws of Australia roughly half, are not made by Parliament in that fashion. So Parliament will pass a law that thou shalt not um, get up early in the morning. And at the end of that law, it says, 
any further laws associated with this can be passed under delegated legislation. So that gives the department and the minister the right to add further laws to that original law. And that is what de delegated legislation is. Increasingly, increasingly over the past 20 years, that delegated legislation method has been used to create new laws. So a law like this that I've described to you will have the power for delegated legislation down the track. So what I've described to you is a draconian situation, awful situation at the moment, but who knows how far it would go if under delegated legislation, the government, just go, the executive government, goes ahead without reference to parliament and proceeds to uh, make new laws of, of its own liking. Well, I actually know that one of the programs, a couple of programs we have on 3CR, which are related to the environment, uh, and were auspiced by a uh, a charity organisation that was focused on um, uh, environment. Uh, they've been they've had their support re, uh, withdrawn by that uh, organisation because of this apparently because of this mooted uh, uh, legislative change, which is it's already having an effect. Because we're not uh, charity status goes to uh, quite a few different uh, activist organisations, don't they? Uh, yeah, the, the the problem is usually fear. People react in fear to what might happen. So there are people already reacting to this law, which isn't quite law yet. So, so but that's what normally happens. And when you talk about environmental bodies now, that's what will come. That's where the pressure will come under this law. But a similar approach was taken some years ago to the legal aid bodies. So there are a couple of hundred around Australia, I think, legal aid organisations from, you know, the ones that... You yeah, yeah, the only organisations that people who have no money can actually access legal advice from. The only way people can get legal advice, exactly, and that's probably greater than half of the population, more like 60, 70, 80% can only get good legal advice when they're in uh, charge of something from legal aid commissions, whose funding has been l l gradually lowered over the years anyway. But, th but that's not the issue. About uh, five or ten years ago, they produced a similar law against legal aid commissions saying that if you speak out politically, then you will lose your funding. So it, it was ex exactly the same ideological approach. We don't want any criticism. It's, it's much easier to see with legal aid commissions why that's dangerous. Legal aid commissions are the front line of what's happening in our society. They're, they're there at the really gritty end of people being charged with offences and going to magistrates' courts and so on. There's nobody better placed in Australia to tell us what's going on, how people are faring, what, what crimes are being committed, um, how, who's doing it tough etc. than legal aid commissions. But the minute they come out and say the government should be doing this, that or the other, they lose their funding. And that's exactly the time, same approach ideologically that's being taken with the, with the uh, charities now. So they've reined in the legal aid commissions providing criticism or analysis and criticism, which is more important, and they're now going to rein in the charity sector as well. So it's a pretty dangerous way of controlling people's thinking and sp 
free speech. Yeah, it is. It's really dangerous. Because, and as you've already pointed out, what they're saying is that minor offences and the offences that they're talking about are, you know, are t- uh, to do with, uh, you know, blocking, doing a, a bl- uh, illegal blockade, as they call it, and a whole range of other things. Anyway, the uh, uh, which, as you've already pointed out, if there were things that were considered to be illegal, uh, like breaking in or any of those trespass, those types of things, they've already got they've already got uh, uh, statutes on the books, criminal statutes on the books, and there is no necessary, uh, uh, there's nothing necessary, because it's very much like this business about incitement that's been trying to use the uh, idea of incitement for uh, to stop people from doing protests. Um, uh, what I was going to get on to was that the Federal Charities Minister, Zed, uh, Zed uh, Zalaja has been using this, uh, saying things like, uh, the government strongly supports the right to peaceful, lawful protest, in inverted commas, and it's one of our key democratic principles. So he obviously, and that's in inverted commas too, he obviously understands that he needs to say that these things um, are essential to our d- democratic, uh, liberal uh um, ideological framework, but that he, uh, but he's uh, on one hand he's saying we know this, and on the other hand they're actually uh, curtailing democratic process by pretending that it's about a general safety. Uh, yeah, the uh, the minister is Zed Seselja, who is the Senate one of the two senators for the ACT. The other one is a Labor Party member, and there are three. Um, Labor Party lower house members in the ACT. I wouldn't take anything that Zed Seselja tells you or says in relation to human rights with any belief whatsoever. And I'll tell you why. You're probably not aware because you're in Melbourne, but that citizens of the Northern Territory and of the Australian Capital Territory are not permitted to even vote on whether or not they should have euthanasia or voluntary assisted dying. Now, you know that it's introduced in Victoria, or it's coming in in the other states, Queensland shortly, etc., Tasmania. But in the ACT in the Northern Territory, the citizens are prevented from even voting on it by a federal law, which was a private member's bill from Kevin Andrews. Now, when last year it was proposed that that law be overturned, all the members of, of Parliament for the ACT on human rights grounds said, of course, the ACT in Northern Territory should be able to make their own decision about whether or not they have a, a voluntary assisted dying. But our friend, Mr Zedzelja, voted against giving his own citizens the human right to vote on an issue like that. So I wouldn't take what Zedzelja says about human rights very, very closely. I was, I was really, it was really the uh, weasel words approach that they take where they put forward that, you know, that uh, we, we need to do this for our safety, but in actual fact it, it undermines our uh, ability to actually uh, self-determine our futures as, in, uh, as part of the population. It really does. This, this rule that they would like to put in really does undermine... Uh, society's ability to actually uh, be part of the democratic process. 
Well, the democratic process is important to citizens. It's not important to politicians. That's the problem, particularly those in power. Politicians in power don't want a democratic process. They'll say otherwise, as Ed Sezel just says, and they'll sprout the words of human rights, but they neither understand them fully nor do they fully believe in them. And I've given you an example, a prime example of why I can demonstrate that the soldier doesn't believe in individuals' human rights. But the politicians aren't interested in democracy. They're interested in continued rule. So, for example, in Western Australia, the federal, the state government's just been returned to the massive majority, huge majority, and they're already got their eyes firmly fixed on how they can be returned next time around. They're not at all worried about the fact that, hang on, we've got three years of opportunity here to get on and do good things for the people. Their main focus is on how they can be returned in four years' time. And that's the Labor Party. I mean, the, the Liberals and the Labor parties do exactly the same thing. Well, you know, that just uh, gives weight to my view that uh, you should keep them guessing, <laughs> whatever the brand they are. <laughs> um, I agree. Turnover of uh, governments is a necessity at least every third time, but probably every second time around. Yeah, just just uh, just on sheer um, uh, normal uh, human, um, uh, you know, greed and uh, self-preservation. <laughs> well, exactly. And I mean, the, the point is that we'd all we're all pretty dumb. We all go out. Most of us go out and vote for either the. Labor Party or the Liberal Party, some a few for the Greens. Whereas if we voted in, in independence into power, that we, we could create chaos and actually make people consider the laws and not just a, a party machine of either side decide who's going to be in power. Yeah, yeah. Um, if we go back to the uh, the thing that we originally started on, which is this sort of assault on charities and not-for-profits, by attempting to make them liable for any involvement in protests that result in minor offences, um, the uh, how long? When do they finish uh, discussing? And when would it could it possibly be considered uh, by Parliament? Uh, as far as I'm aware, it can be considered in the next session of Parliament. It's- been through its processes of uh, supposed consultation and so on, as far as I'm aware. So they could uh, pass the legislation. The government's got the numbers, so they could pass the legislation whenever they like. Um, so you, you could have this in in uh, place by the before the end of the year easily. Um, so you know, and, and the real danger is this is this is this is the charity has no control over what over the people who are going to bring it down. I mean, if somebody uses a charity's website or a pamphlet or some social media that the the charity's put out and this person reads it and then goes and does something and later on says, oh, I did it because I read it on the website or I saw something on social media of X charity or Y charity, then the charity's guilty. <laughs> guilty because... Somebody has actually got information from the charity's website. That you know, that's crazy. That really is thought police stuff. Yeah. The yeah. other point about, um, I mean, you would know there's, there's about sixty thousand charities in Australia. Yeah. So anybody, all of us are, are somehow or other connected with charities or, or deal with charities. You go to the Vinnies or um, Salvos or whatever um, to do some shopping or. You're a member of Amnesty or Greenpeace or 
First Nations Death in Custody Watch Committee or the Climate Council of Australia. These are the types of really diverse bodies that should not be subject to laws like this. Thanks for talking to us today, Bill. It's a pleasure. Thank you for asking me.
You're listening to 3CR, 855am, the voice of the community. Yeah, and you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and we've got Gupreet, who's a COVID safe organiser from the Migrant Workers Centre at the Victorian Trades Hall Council on the line. G'day, Gupreet, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Good. You you sound like a man that's been working very hard. Um, yeah, it's, it's been uh, it's been a tough time the past uh, week or so. Yeah. So tell us about what's yeah. what you've been up to. Um, yeah, so mainly um, in the COVID safe workplace um, team, that mainly what we offer is um, confidential advice to um, anyone who's um, who has concerns about um, COVID safety at work, um, and we can offer advice and you know point them in the right direction um, regarding the workplace rights and. Um, you know, what actions I can take to make sure that they're COVID safe at work. Okay, so uh, what kind of uh, people have been ringing you up and what are the things that they've been worried about? Um, yeah, so mainly what um, the what we get is a lot of people are worried about, you know, if they're getting masks and sanitizer at work or if they're being asked to um, check in um you know, for contact tracing, um, as well as some concerns around, um, you know, how they're going to get the vaccine and stuff. Yep, yep, yep. Yes, that's mainly been what we've um, what we've been getting. Yeah. So, so your service is uh, really great about uh, you know uh, allaying people's fears it, it, because uh, talking people through what they need to do to keep safe. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah, we try and you know make sure that people know what rights they have in the workplace. Mm. And and are the uh, people that are, you are ringing, uh, what kind of jobs are they doing at the moment? Um, right, yeah, it's, it's a bit it's a bit varied. Um, we'll have people from all sorts of fields, like labouring and construction, all the way up to hairstylists and hairdressers, um, and Obviously, depending on who's working from home versus who's currently at work now, it also depends on that. So, right now, a lot of the um, a lot of the inquiries that we're anticipating are from people working in factories or aged care and industries like that that are high risk. Yeah, yeah, high risk. And uh, uh, what sort of things are they? Uh, you know, they're particularly worried about PPE. Uh, Personal protection equipment and uh, and also I presume uh, how close they are to working to each other and how long they're working with each other, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So we find that you know, especially you know, we looked at last year with the um, with the so-called second wave um, back in July and August. Um, we had a lot of cases from particularly um, meat processing plants and aged care. Yeah, um, and the conditions over there, so specifically like the meat processing plants, we had a lot of um, you know a lot of people working close together in um, in the production line, people going in and out of work at the same time because of shift work, um, which allowed um, which allowed the virus to spread quickly throughout workplaces because of the nature of their work as well as in aged care. 
where we have a lot of casualization and a lot of, um, you know, it's it's not really a regulated space in terms of health and safety. And we had a lot of people who worked at multiple um, aged care residences, which allowed if so, you know if someone got the virus at one workplace, you know, and didn't show symptoms for a few days, travelled to a few different aged care homes. That meant that the virus spread really quickly um, throughout different areas. Yeah, well, we learnt that uh, the federal government, who is the regulator of private uh, health uh, aged care, had actually sort of quietly um, relaxed the rules around yeah. Uh, work. Yeah, and is that coming out in the wash? Is that yeah, showing yeah. results? Yeah. Yeah, we find that a lot of um, a lot of the problems with uh, with the spread of COVID around aged care can be traced back to there's an increased casualization and deregulation um, of the of the industry. You know, there's not really it's it's all run by uh, private, mostly unregulated um, HK companies, um, and they don't really have the most effective uh, healthcare or health and safety um, policies. And it's for the most part, it is unregulated. Are you finding uh, that uh, are people ringing into your service, or are you going out there as well? And uh, are you finding that uh, uh, individual workers are trying to work out ways where they can protect themselves despite their employers? Yes. Yeah, so um, pr- prior to lockdown, we were going out. We were mainly going out to different community centres, um, as well as different areas like train stations. And stuff like that, um, and we find that yeah, like people are concerned about their safety at work, um, but a lot of people, you know, don't know their rights um, and are sort of kept in the dark by the employer, by the government, about what rights they have in the workplace regarding COVID safety as well as just general health and safety as well. You, you've got a COVID checklist, haven't you? How do people yeah. get it? Yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, so you go to the website on covidsafeworkplace.org um, and there it's easily downloadable. And what well, you can use that checklist for, you can you know use it to ensure that, you know, if your workplace isn't following any of the procedures outlined in the checklist, you can, uh, you know, fill out a form or ring in and, you know, we'll use that and, you know, um, give you confidential advice on, you know, how to proceed and how to um, stand up for your rights. Okay, so that number, that uh, location again, website location again for the uh, uh, checklist? Yeah, covidsafeworkplace.org. Yeah, great. Thanks very much for talking yeah. to me this morning. Oh, yeah. Thank you. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on digital and online, 3CR Radical Radio. We continue now on Over the Wall to talk with Dermot from Social Security Rights Victoria and get down to the nitty-gritty of some of the issues that people have with Centrelink. 
you mentioned you've had a fair bit of work at SSRV assisting people with Centrelink debts and we've covered on over the wall significantly the robo debt issue and, and spoken to the Not My Debt campaign across the years. Have you had any ongoing concerns about any types of Centrelink debts post the settlement of the class action? No specific concerns, but I would say that Centrelink debts are concerning in general. And what I mean by that is they are the second, if not first, about which one we have more inquiries about, whether it's debts or DSP. And yes, they can be significant. Robo-debts, we were talking about debts where it's maybe 1,000, maybe 2,000, maybe 10,000 was a big robo-debt. But in other areas, you can see 20, 30, $100,000 debts. I've seen debts that are over a million dollars. They're not very common, but they do happen. And when you're talking about vulnerable and disadvantaged people that don't have the means to just pay it back, basically, they may be completely reliant on their Centrelink payments and then having a portion of that go to recovery of that debt puts them under further stress. Yeah, it is very concerning. Do you find that you're working with people who sincerely felt like they were doing the right thing and complying with Centrelink and and getting these massive debts? Well, one that I was going to talk about is parents and families who may be receiving parenting payment and also the family tax benefit. And quite often, too often, I would say, see people in that situation come to us with a debt for misreporting their income. And what's actually happened is they've reported their income for the family tax benefit, which is normally an estimate over the year. It's reconciled at tax time. And they've assumed that that's all they need to do with Centrelink. But parenting payment actually has a different reporting requirement. You need to report fortnightly for that. They haven't reported at all for parenting payment and they end up with a significant debt because of that. Because yet none of their income has been taken or their partner's income even has been taken into account and their entitlement versus what they've been paid are two different things. And is there a gap period? Can it be years between when the debt is incurred and when the people actually get notified about it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And not only a gap when the debt is incurred and when they're notified, but sometimes it will take Centrelink a significant amount of time to trip that there is actually a debt being incurred and it's still being incurred. So people can be racking up a debt for three, four more years and that's where you see the big ones. It may be that their payment is only $100 off each fortnight, But over four years, that can be a significant amount of money. There must be a lot of legal issues around that too, which you work with at SRV. Yeah, definitely. Moving on, I'm going to talk about COVID-19 and when the coronavirus supplement ceased in April and people lost the 150 a fortnight extra from their job seeker payment, which was mitigated only mildly by a $50 increase in payments from pre-COVID amounts. And as we all know, that historically took many decades just to get that $50 raise. Now, income stress around budgeting must have increased rapidly with this sudden loss of income. And another less known issue is that changes to reporting and eligibility requirements from April, including the job seeker payment income test and partner income taper were relaxed 
during the special coronavirus measures, these all changed back again after April the 1st this year. What information is SSRV finding people need to be aware of about the changes to JobSeeker, including these waiting periods and mutual obligations? There's a few things. The list for things that people need to be aware of is almost endless, but a few things in particular. For people who are already receiving payments, and especially JobSeeker, the biggest thing they should be aware of is the changes to the income test and mutual obligations. The income test and thresholds have changed. The most important thing to be aware of with that is to ensure that you're reporting your income accurately to make sure that your payment is calculated accurately. The risk that you run if you don't do that is a debt will be accrued and then maybe years down the track, you'll have to pay money back. In terms of mutual obligations, so the activity tests, the things that you need to do to continue getting your payment, these have changed as well. So by default, a person on JobSeeker will need to be doing 15 job searches a month now, which is up from eight, which is what it was previously, and especially during COVID, could have been suspended entirely depending on where you lived. The mutual obligations will vary from person to person, though, because job plans can be negotiated and should take into account the circumstances of the individual. So if, for whatever reason, your job plan doesn't seem appropriate for you, the important thing is to talk to your job agency or your disability employment service about that and make sure that you're getting something that you can achieve. For people who are not receiving a payment, I think the biggest change to be aware of is the changes to waiting periods and The main one that stands out to me is that the newly arrived residence waiting period, which was temporarily suspended during the pandemic, has now been restarted. So if you're a newly arrived resident, someone who's been here for, depending on your individual circumstances, but generally less than four years, you may not be able to get a payment that you could have got during the pandemic. It's good to be aware of that. There's not really much that you can do about it. There are a few exemptions that are a bit detailed to go into today. But yeah, just be aware that that has started again and that may limit your options. You can always test your eligibility with Centrelink and see what they say and they'll tell you if you can't get it for whatever reason and then you can appeal that if you need to. And just one final area there which people might not be aware of or understand is the partner income taper. We didn't have too many queries about this. It wasn't a too controversial issue during the pandemic. But what's happened is the amount of money your partner could earn and the impact that that would have on your payments was higher during the pandemic. It now has been lowered. So your partner's income as a general rule will have more of an impact on your payments. Again, there's not really anything that you can do about that. The only thing that you need to remember is to report your partner's income and your own income accurately to make sure that you're getting paid accurately. And that way you reduce the risk of any debt being incurred later on. It's great to have a service such as SSRV because listeners and myself would understand hearing this information. It's very complicated information. And I imagine it's very hard for the average person or someone with a mild intellectual disability to really be able to understand all these issues and compliance requirements. Yeah. 100%. And, and that's, yeah, something that we do see. People that have found themselves with debts in particular because they just haven't understood what they were supposed to do. The same with eligibility for what it's worth. It can be a barrier to getting payments, not understanding what you're being assessed on. 
Moving on to another issue about housing, a lack of rental properties has been seen as a humanitarian crisis. For example, the homelessness, New South Wales Chief Executive Catherine McKernan, when describing the reduction of payments in job seeker and the loss of job keeper, she stated, quote, we have done some economic modelling and in Newcastle, for example, we are looking at potentially an increase in homelessness of up to 38%. And this issue is compounded by waiting lists of over a decade for public housing and insufficient investment by governments, including, as we've just heard in this year's federal budget, no significant or no new increase at all for social housing, with thousands of people on the social housing wait lists. And this all means we are recently seeing in Australia another large increase in a homelessness crisis, and this impacts people including families with young children, including those with sole mothers. There are young families living in short stays in motels and then trying to couch surf in places in between with young kids. And just generally, what are some of the issues for young families and, and sole mothers that SSRV are seeing in particular for young families with social security issues? I know you'll be speaking for the Victorian situation. Yeah, sure what we mentioned earlier, the difference between parenting payment and the family tax benefits reporting requirements, because that is one big issue that we do see in particular for young families, single mothers and people in yeah. those situations. Difference between those two. Can you explain, like, there are actually two different lines that people have to call and report on, just getting down to the nitty gritty of what people have to do? Yes. Yeah, so... The nitty gritty of it is that family tax benefit is technically a family assistance payment. It's administered through Centrelink. Centrelink are the people that you talk to, but it's technically part of tax, to put it bluntly. Parenting payment is a standard social security payment for people who are parenting in certain circumstances. The family tax benefit reporting is normally done as an estimate that you do over the entire year, how much you're going to earn for that year. And then it's reconciled at tax time. So they work out, you know, what did you actually earn? How much were you entitled to? You may have a, a small debt for that, or you may actually be due a top up. The confusion arises because both parenting payment and family tax benefit are paid fortnightly. Parenting payment being paid fortnightly and being a more standard social security payment, just like JobSeeker, just like the DSP, just like Youth Allowance or any other payment you could be getting, requires that you report your income fortnightly. You have to do that every fortnight to get your, your payment. So yeah, it is essentially two different departments, two different areas of Centrelink and potentially two different lines that you're calling on to report your income and doing it in different timeframes. One's over a year, you do once, one is every fortnight. People assume that once they've done the over the year estimate, they're good for the year. And then they may not report fortnightly, and that's where they find themselves in trouble. This is a public service announcement. And number two, you have the right to food money. Providing a cause, you don't mind a little investigation.
Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when the nation celebrated Reconciliation Week. Real true Belwazis like us attempting to reconcile with people who didn't even exist. Terra nullius, terra nullius non-people, although I'm wondering in which bit of post-1788 history we were so close we needed to reconcile, but how warming the way the Western Trublawazi Socialist Government went out of its way, way beyond the call of duty, to celebrate the week, introducing its new Aboriginal Heritage Act in response to esteemed corporate Rio Tato, the planet, putting access to profit ahead of 46,000 years of terra nullius non-people history. And what thanks to the Western Trublawazi Socialists get? Bloody criticism. The local indigenous mobs are critical of the new legislation, yet the mining oil and gas giants who contribute so much to this country support it, showing it is almost impossible to reconcile with people who just won't accept a little bit of compromise. Like the Minister for Keeping Terra Nullius Non-People in Their Place, Stephen door closed, son, declaring Indigenous people would not have a power of veto over mining and related activity proposals when the resource industry prepared to compromise declared a veto power would pose too great a threat to the economy. While obviously the ingrate non-people are prepared to put their history and traditions ahead of the economic interests as if there's a comparison. The veto would be a red flag the industry warned, although the term red flag might encourage a socialist government to adopt it. Be careful, Chamber of Minerals and Energy Profits Council Supremo Paul Everything We Can Dig Ham, himself a former caring business class party politician. But Paul exemplified the spirit of compromise, of reconciliation that the Terranulius non-people reject. The proposal retains a right of appeal for the indigenous people, a right which has worked a treat over many years. We have always supported a right to appeal for all parties, Paul was all reason, and think the draft legislation provides adequate rights of appeal. Uh, Adequate, Paul. Yes, yes, adequate enough to ensure the right of appeal does nothing to prevent us doing what we want to do. The opposite of that common sense, the negativity of the non-people expressed by the Kimberley Land Council Chair Anthony Watson, the proposed legislation he raved on is deeply flawed and a backward step as it places control over critical decisions making about decision making about Aboriginal cultural heritage in the hands of mining companies and other land users. The government needs to recognise that traditional owners have a right to protect their cultural heritage and not bow to the interests of the big mining companies. Have we ever heard anything so selfish, particularly when we hear Paul everything we can dig hams, the Chamber of Profits, reasoned compromise and the rigidity of the non-people? Despite that, we must congratulate the Western Trublawazi government for having a go, for going out of its way to celebrate reconciliation with people who clearly don't want to be reconciled. Caring Business Class Party conference last weekend with big economic guru Josh Friday of Icebergs declaring, We are not here to serve big business. We are here to serve the Trublawazi people. 
Where did that come from? Why would he think he needed to say that? Does he for some reason think there are people who may think they do serve big business? Surely not. Oh, well, the odd loghead, commie, greenie, wouldn't work in an iron lot might, but they're irrelevant, and Josh knows that the interests of the true blue Aussie people and the interests of big business, the caring business class, are identical, symbiotic. So really, he had no need to say it. It's like the Socialist Party keeps telling us it is here in the interests of workers and the underprivileged, as if it has to, as if it needs to convince us of the obvious, because the obvious is so obvious. The New South Wales Socialist Party, no longer state supremo and no longer would-be big supremo, resigned following a bit of a backlash from the upper Hunter by-election. And a former supremo and would-be big supremo Michael Daly has thrown his hat into the ring, saying he'd learned from his mistakes during the 2019 election the Socialists lost when he came under a bit of criticism for saying foreigners from typically Asian countries were taking jobs off locals. Uh, learnt your lesson, Michael. Uh, yes, I can guarantee that will never happen again. Uh, so you don't think those things anymore? Uh, of course I do, but, but I'm not going to say them. Very sensible. Josh and the great corporate leaders who know what's good for all of us were celebrating figures showing the economy is bigger now than it was before the pandemic struck. A magnificent recovery. This is great news for workers, Josh. Now they'll be able to escape from the slow wages growth that has had you all so worried. Good heavens, do you want to destroy the recovery, destroy the economy, set us all back years? Now is not the time to ask for a pay rise. If workers want to see wages rise, the end of slow wages growth, the last thing they should do is ask for a pay rise. So if they want a pay rise, they shouldn't ask for a pay rise. Exactly. Any wonder we have to leave these matters to those who know, because in my obvious naivety, I thought a thriving economy would be a good time too, but, but no. Josh and the great barons of the boardrooms know, understand, and we can rest assured they'll tell us when the time is right for a pay rise, because slow wages growth's been worrying the life out of them for years. As an aside, similar logic from former Attorney General Christian Portaloo, whose defamation action ended up in the Portaloo, but after he withdrew the matter, he said the ABC had chosen not to proceed, forgetting to mention the apparently irrelevant fact that there was no longer anything on which to proceed. Top logic Christian. The government's concern for workers and those for whom it is responsible was evidenced in the aged care sector. Vaccination rates of residents and staff in the majority of homes for which it is responsible. Thus, we asked the Minister for Unbelievable Stupidity, Richard Cole back, um, back private profits, about the incidence of vaccination rates. Uh, Minister, what percentage of staff have been vaccinated? Minister. Minister. Oh, sorry, you talking to me? Uh, well, yes, you're the Minister for Unbelievable Stupidity. I am? Yes, so, so what's the rate? What rate? I think I paid my rates. Actually, I'm not sure. I, I better check. Thanks for reminding me. No, no, the rate of staff vaccination and resident vaccination in aged care facilities. Oh, I've got no idea. Why would you ask me that? What, what makes you think I'd know that? Well, mainly because you're the responsible minister, using responsible very loosely, Richard. I'm a minister? I don't recall going to theology college. Uh, 
Now, let's be fair. Richard is very bright. He knows the answer to every question is, I don't know. His colleague, the Minister for Capitalist Education, Alan uh, Tudge Won't Budge, told a universities conference he sympathised with the sector as one of the hardest hit financially by COVID. Unfortunately, sympathy's all they got. So what will you do to help, Al? Well, obviously, a sympathetic nothing. Surely my sympathy's enough. The socialist shadow capitalist education minister Tanya Plebiscica-Wynn did tell the conference that if they were coal, iron ore or natural gas, you'd be treated very differently. Gotta hope Alan's sympathy isn't keeping him awake at night and I've got a feeling it isn't. Kelly News the other night telling us what gems awaited us after the break. After the break, a TV legend set sail. On her, he's luxury yacht, I thought. But no, set sail for heaven or hell or oblivion. An actor who played the captain in Love Boat died, but in the land of euphemistics, he didn't die. He set sail with the wind behind him. Perhaps he died of an acute case of flatulence. So so if we see a cruise ship disappearing into the winter sky along with a winged pig and a big pie in the sky, it's him. Speaking of pies, a leaked internal report from multinational food, we'll be kind and call it food, food behemoth Nestle's, revealed that more than 60% of its products do not meet a recognised definition of health and some of our categories and products will never be healthy. Its junk food confectionery and ice creams were a mere 99% unhealthy. Junk beverages an unhealthy 96% unhealthy. And just to stamp Nestle's commitment to community health, strawberry-flavoured Nesquik, marketed as perfect at breakfast to get kids ready for the day, contains, even by their standards, this is pretty incredible, 14 grams of sugar in a 14-gram serving. But the report being leaked, Nestle's rejected claims that processed foods, including its own, tend to be unhealthy. But the stat that I have a bit of trouble with is their water, which passed glowingly with an 82% health positive. But, 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 but we're talking about water. Where does the 18% unhealthy bit come from? I thought water was water. Ignoring the fact that we can get it out of a tap rather than fill Nestle's healthy coffers, the the only thing healthy about them. Not to mention Nestle's social and environmental impacts on communities, particularly in so-called third world countries from which it sources its water. Couple of finalies. Comparing the common sense of the caring business class to our, well, certainly my economic naivety. Sensibly, the Chambers of Profits have declared our lockdown shows there must be no wage rise for the lowest paid of the lowest paid. The Telstra, which used to be ours, Woolworths Trillions, and the Witch Bank, which used to be our bank, got together to bemoan the excessive complexity of caring business class relations, wishing we could return to the days of uncontrollable socialists, former big supremo Paul and ACTU supremo Bill Kilty the Workers, who showed a genuine intent to find solutions that allowed companies to grow and be successful. And we must say, did they what? And in the high income end of the economy, they discovered, gee, who would have thought, that in accounting accounting firms, for instance, male partners are paid on average 60% more than female partners, with one bank organising a program to educate people on the problem.
Now, they understand, and here's my naivety coming out again. I would have thought a simple solution would be simply to, wait for it, simply to pay women the same rate. Obviously wrong. Good morning. I am not in love But I'm open to persuasion East or West When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. But with a lover I could hold my hand back You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, that last piece in Kevin's bit about not paying women so little at that executive level, it's, it, there's something slightly pathetic about this, uh, this uh, world we live in. Uh, and on the line we've got uh, Dr Scott Hawken from uh, the School of Architecture and Built Environment in, from Adelaide University. G'day Scott, how are you? Hello? Are you there? Are you there? He went away. Hello? All right, I'll put on something and we'll find out what happened. You know, there's people, like you said, have been on casual for seven years. Well, it's supposed to be casual employment. People want full-time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any any days, any leave or what's, whatsoever. Especially, you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment, they're sitting home. You know, people want full-time employment and they, sh- they should be entitled to That's full-time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector and all the problems that are facing people now and all the deaths that are following. In the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire, you know, we've got blokes travelling around, you know. We want full-time positions and, you know, that's... And people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Are you there, Scott? Yes, I'm, I'm there. We're now. Hi. Yeah, good. <laughs> I don't know what happened there. Uh, the uh, the blight of uh, community radio, maybe, or uh, just uh, live radio. As I was, rem- I'll remind listeners, Dr. Scott um, Hawken, he's a lecturer at the School of Architecture and Built Environment at Adelaide University. And the reason for why we're going to talk to you about uh, today is because you are involved in looking at projects, mega projects in uh, Southeast Asia. Now, obviously, in our neoliberal sort of environment, since the 1980s, uh, urban mega projects have tended to become the answer to economic uh, problems in uh, developing countries. Can you tell us a little bit about the the focus projects that you've been working on? Yeah, sure. Sure, thanks, Annie. Um, so perhaps I'll start by just saying what got me interested in the projects. Um, I spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia uh, early in the 2000s um, doing my PhD in archaeology and 
looking at some cities uh, much older than the um, uh, the ones I've been looking at in relation to this recent research. Um, so I was investigating Angkor in Cambodia. And so cities a thousand years ago in Southeast Asia were very um, uh, conscious of water and they integrated into their built forms in really creative um, ways. You could say that, that they were half um, water, half earth. Uh, but you know, in recent times, um, these mega projects, such as uh, um, Amarapura uh, in Myanmar um, and the Bangkok Lake project in Cambodia, and then the Fumi Hung project in Vietnam, um, they've really sought to displace water and either eliminate it um, from their, their built built forms of the city or really just reduce it to an aesthetic role. So um, that has a lot of uh, impact, not just on the environment, uh, but for the, the communities who rely on that water for all sorts of different reasons. So for, for farming, for fishing, so more traditionally rural uses, but um, also in relation to the urban function of uh, cities, Th these wetlands are really important for filtering um, wastes and uh, for sanitation and for a whole range of everyday uses. So w when these mega projects are, are envisioned, um, they're, not, not, they're not including um, the needs of the, the average person. So that, that's my main criticism in in uh, following um, the research that I've done. Now, Scott, because we've, we've got a very bad line, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit away from your uh, your um, mouthpiece because we seem to be getting some uh, feedback. Do you think? Right, okay. Oh, that's that better. better. Oh, that's lovely. Fantastic. You're, you're a good man. Now, um, the re one of the reasons why I wanted to speak to you about this is because at the moment there is a huge uh, uh, uproar in Georgia over a mega project that they want to put in there. And uh, it, it means, as someone says, it's cementing across a whole uh, natural world which uh, and all the people's uh, interactions and cultural connections as well as, as you say, the filtering and uh, well-being of all the normal, ordinary people. Uh, and one of the reasons for, uh, why these uh, mega projects are so... Uh, are so um, flavour of the month, as it were, or decade, decades, is because of the uh, economic uh, uh, economy, large economies being king, effectively, and the ordinary person not being um, uh, involved in the actual decision-making. So uh, you, you are part of some uh, a pushback by the United Nations to looking at greater accountability for these projects, looking at what economy and who are the winners and at what price. That's correct, isn't it? Yeah, that's uh, that's correct, Danny. So, you know, we we all rely on mega projects, um, but um, in you know, there's more than one way of uh, shaping them and uh, integrating them within society um, to 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 make sure that they are productive and um, inclusive. So, 
the UN um, uh, in in over the last few years has been doing some uh, research and reports and you know I was part of that consultation process and they looked at a whole range of mega projects such as um, you know the type that you mentioned in Georgia um, uh, dams large plantations uh, um, and more urban mega projects, such as the ones I, w- I was looking at. Um, so when I say urban mega project, what I mean there is um, big uh, mixed use project that, that becomes part of the city. So typically it would include apartments or a business district, um, like a city extension. So there's a whole range of these mega projects, and um, typically uh, the, the the government might initiate them they might have a vision but then they hand them over to private um, uh, operators or a hybrid of public and private and that really distances them from the public so I think that's a that's a problem and a challenge um, that we need to address so the accountability is not there and also it gives rise to certain winners, people who are the richer people in the community uh, being able to gain more out of these projects than the, the general group of people. That's what's being done. That's banned. right. Yes, that's right. So um, uh, to give a, a very stark example of this, um, in my... Uh, Previous, uh, one of my previous positions um, before I uh, joined the university, I was uh, working in a urban design firm, and we were part of the um, uh, part of the part of a consortium, um, design consortium, who won um, what was then called the East Darling Harbour competition in Sydney. So that was an international competition, and that was a that was a mega project, um, but our vision was one that included the community, um, and we had a long uh, park along one side because you know we uh, acknowledge that this is all public land. Um, but then, uh, within the machinations of, um, of the political uh, process, um, it was handed over um, to a one of these public private private organizations and they decided to actually remove a lot of the park and build a casino there so that's <laughs> casino so that's a very stark example and we all know what happened with Packers casino so this is typical of mega projects and the public has no say in it and you know it should have been a, a public park there um, instead we ended up with a, um, a huge white elephant um, yeah it's, it's a tragedy. Yeah, yeah, overbuilding, overbuilding, and uh, in agrarian uh, uh, countries like the one that you you were to- talking about originally, we were talking about originally in uh, Vietnam and in in Cambodia and Myanmar, um, where people are directly connected to the water flow, as you're talking about, and the uh, removal of waste and all that at a much more connected level. But uh, putting a casino where there needs to be a park, they, they, you know, it's not just the lungs, of the, it's the lungs of the city, but also gives people a, a, a decent life. 
They, these That's are right. really important issues, aren't they, for urban uh, con- connections? Yeah, so those, you know, the projects I'm looking at in Southeast Asia are very different from, say, um, Barangaroo in um, the centre of Sydney. But um, we're still, at, um, at its core, we're still talking about the same thing, the, the commons, those are resources that should belong to everybody, such as water and um, you know, a clean environment, um, and somewhere to live with access to uh, urban services. So the Bangkok Lake, um, even though um, you know a lot of the people there uh, were um, engaged in some agricultural activities, uh, it was a very urban site. Um, so right in the middle of the city, um, of Phnom Penh. So I first visited that, um, yeah, uh, uh, close to 20 years ago now, and and back then it was a. Um, a a lake, um, and it had a ring of uh, houses um, around it, very simple uh, wooden houses. Um, and that was uh, a legacy um, of a long process of, of, of transformation of Phnom Penh dating back to colonial times when the French came and, and began transforming the city of Phnom Penh. So they, they, they began transforming it from a, a city of water, you could say, to a city of stone. So these processes um, aren't completely new, but you would think we would uh, be uh, more careful and um, inclusive uh, today, but it doesn't seem to be happening. Yeah, it's interesting if we go to the um, uh, Georgian instance, uh, which is hot at the moment, uh, that's exactly the question. What's the price when there are other alternatives? And also, interestingly enough, that particular electricity development, um, it's a noose around the neck of the country for the future because they're tied into high prices over a long period to that particular company. So you sort of, there's a whole lot of ramifications to these big mega projects, aren't there? Yes, there's there's a lot of um, ramifications um, and... They tend to, you know, by their very nature, mega mega project doesn't fit in with an existing context. It changes the context, so it just completely um, transforms, and as you um, suggested, Annie, uh, can lock people um, or society into uh, certain cost structures and and, and ways of doing things, which um, not necessarily better um, could cost more. Um, so yeah, there's ways of managing that, you know. And I've um, looked into that, um, but but one of the, I think, um, and, and none of them are easy. I, I have to say, um, because you know these projects are designed to distance themselves from uh, normal democratic processes. So I think there has to be a bit of a, a pushback, um, and. Uh, Communities need to build coalitions um, and work with uh, professionals um, and try to engage in the, the decision-making process, even though they, they might not necessarily be invited. So um, perhaps it is about 
uh, engaging with these uh, international institutions, um, such as the World Bank, um, which happened in Phnom Penh. Um, the World Bank managed to put a moratorium on, on development in Phnom Penh for a few years um, because of the global attention which was drawn to um, the Bangkok Lake development. So that was a, a minor success, but ultimately it didn't last, unfortunately. Mm. Thanks for talking to us about this. Um, I, just to finish off, uh, the work with the UN, is this uh, advisory, uh, are they creating a, um, a library effectively or a, a brain's trust of information around this? So um, it, the, the UN Special Reporter, uh, Reporter on Water and Sanitation um, produced a report. Um, it's already out, so you can go and look at it um, on on the UN website. Um, and, uh, you know, if anyone's interested in that, I can direct them to that. Um, but, you know, there are other interesting resources which I can uh, recommend. Um, one of them is the uh, um, Environmental Justice Atlas. Um, so if you if you do a search for that, um, you'll find this web page, and it's quite a fascinating resource. You'll see, you'll be able to locate some of the projects I've been talking about. Um, perhaps George, the one you mentioned in Georgia, Annie, but um, uh, there are hundreds of these projects across the world, and so you know, I, I really think this is a amazing um, and important initiative to build a database and just start talking about these patterns that are occurring everywhere. And, and, and once you, you begin to understand them, you can develop strategies to um, humanise these projects or to think about a completely different way of doing things, um, which, is, which, which is not often done. You know, the mega projects are not always necessary and um, we, we have to think of more uh, inclusive and incremental development um, rather than these these massive developments which uh, don't include communities. Thanks very much for talking to me this morning. Thanks so much, Annie. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, that was Dr Scott Hawken, uh, lecturer at School of Architecture and Built Environments. Lots to talk, to think about. Uh, that's it for Solidarity Breakfast this morning. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. We... Uh, did quite a few things today. We talked to Bill Rowlings from Civil uh, Liberties Australia about uh, an attack on uh, charities uh, on and our democracy. Uh, Gupreet, uh, COVID-safe organiser at the Migrant Workers' Centre, gave us some idea of what's been going on for workers during COVID. Over the wall, they looked at uh, uh, Social Security Rights Victoria. Very interesting stuff that this is the week that was followed by uh, a look at mega projects around the world. As I said, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents, and I thought we'd finish with uh, um, a, a song from Lisa Mo- Amazon d'Afrique. Smile. We probably all need to learn how to smile. Let's talk about now about something really serious. Yeah. Our future. We need to take it. Our future into our hands. Let's say our future.
listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.